0: Imagine with me a large city. Impressive buildings, busy roads, millions of people crammed into two small spaces. Imagine an epicenter of business, entertainment, and religion that whispers promises of success, fame, riches, and glory. Now imagine a building in the middle of this city. Grand, glorious, the most beautiful building you can imagine. Constructed of marble and inlaid with gold, stretching 15 stories high and surrounded by a wall thousands of feet in diameter and 150 feet tall. Thousands of people use this building daily. Hundreds of thousands each year travel from distant lands just to see its grandeur and set foot inside its walls. This building is loved by the people. Like a man loves his childhood home, this building is infused with religious and emotional significance and sentiment. Everything in these people's business, personal, and religious life centers around this building. This building is an edifice of their success, a memoir of their history, and a sanctuary for their religion. Now imagine an army, thousands upon thousands of highly trained, rugged warriors dressed for war and eager for blood. Imagine ladders, war engines, battering rams, clouds of arrows in the sky, the heat of fire on your face, the smell of blood and rotting flesh on your nose. Imagine the building, once glorious and imposing, consumed in flames. Imagine the screams of your fellow citizens as they burn, trapped in the walls of a sanctuary turned slaughterhouse. This is the scene of 70 AD, when future Emperor Titus laid siege to, and utterly destroyed, the city of Jerusalem and massacred its citizens. The people's suffering is described even further by the historian Josephus. He writes the following in his work, The Wars of the Jews. The famine increased, and the misery of the weaker was aggravated by seeing the stronger obtaining food. All natural affection was extinguished, husbands and wives, parents and children, snatching the last morsel from each other. Many wretched men were caught by the Romans prowling in the ravines by night to pick up food and these were scourged, tortured, and crucified. This was done to terrify the rest and it went on until there was not wood enough for crosses. Terrible crimes were committed in the city. The aged high priest Matthias was accused of holding communication with the enemy. Three of his sons were killed in his presence and he was executed in sight of the Romans, together with 16 other members of the Sanhedrin. The famine grew so woeful that a woman devoured the body of her own child. Titus now promised that the temple should be spared if the defenders would come forth and fight in any other place, but John and the zealots refused to surrender it. For several days the outer cloisters and outer court were attacked with rams, but the immense and compact stones resisted the blows. As many soldiers were slain in seeking to storm the cloisters, Titus ordered the gates to be set on fire. Through that night and through the next day, the flames raged through the cloisters. Then, in order to save the temple itself, he ordered the fire to be quenched. On the 10th day of August, the same day of the year on which Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple built by Solomon, the cry was heard that the temple was on fire. The Jews, with cries of grief and rage, grasped their swords and rushed to take revenge on their enemies or perish in the ruins. The slaughter was continued while the fire raged. Soon no part was left but a small portion of the outer cloisters where 6,000 people had taken refuge, led by a false prophet who had there promised that God would deliver his people in his temple. The soldiers set the building on fire and all perished. Titus next spent 18 days in preparation for the attack on the upper city, which was then speedily captured. And now, the Romans were not disposed to any display of mercy, night alone putting an end to the carnage. During the whole siege of Jerusalem, 1,100,000 were slain, and the prisoners numbered 97,000. Now this is not an example of desperation and desolation, I do not know what is. The people watched as their hopes, dreams, and everything they once knew was forcibly taken from them. They cried out to their God as enemies descended on them and were met with resounding silence. No fire from heaven in this story. No army of angels to rescue them. No ten plagues, blindness, madness, or miracles to help the believers in God now. It seemed as though God had abandoned his people, and in most respect, he had indeed. 600 years earlier, the prophet Ezekiel sees a vision of God's presence abandoning his temple and people and then backing the foreign, pagan, idol-worshiping nation of Babylon. Infusing them with his power, God makes them an unstoppable force of his judgment on his own people, who had themselves turned away from God and hardened their hearts yet again to his intent. Babylon, the epitome of moral corruption, had become an anointed carrier of God's justice. Babylon would eventually invade the nation of Israel and, just like the Romans would six centuries later, they burned Jerusalem to the ground. What had happened to all the promises of God to Abraham, to Moses, and to Joshua that he would guide, protect, and rescue his people? The people hoped for a Savior and the Messiah and believed he would come. Yet the world around them was a world of death, destruction, and helplessness. Ezekiel has already seen his people conquered and exiled by Babylon, and now in Ezekiel 11:8 8-10, he hears God's address to his unfaithful people. You fear the sword, and the sword is what I will bring against you, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will drive you out of the city and deliver you into the hands of foreigners and inflict punishment on you. You will fall by the sword, and I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel looks at the devastated state of the once magnificent nation of Israel and cries out to God, Ah Sovereign Lord, have you forgotten your people? This question resounds with many of us because most of us can identify with the world of the Israelites in this story. Every day the world around us grows darker, the atrocities of wicked men grow more severe, and the people of God cry out with Ezekiel, Ah, Sovereign Lord, have you forgotten your people? Every news report we hear or online article we read, the potential for the future is made grim, or at least questionable, and there is the constant, looming voice in our ear suggesting that God really has forgotten the world and left us, like the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to devour each other and rot within the walls that once promised them security. H.P. Lovecraft wrote that the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown." We do not know what the future holds in store for us, and many of us live in a constant fear of failure and disappointment. The age-old question of, what if, resounds in our minds with every plan we make and every dream we have. Pessimism grasps us tight in its hands and squeezes out of us every hope and assurance we once had. We listen to the preacher preach salvation and the teacher teach hope, but when we walk out the doors, the world meets us with megaphones, screens, and billboards all declaring unambiguously, God has abandoned this world. Get over it. How do we respond to this message when the outlook for the world really does seem pretty grim? Well, Ezekiel himself, having a front-row seat to the events surrounding the first destruction of Jerusalem, deals with this same question and discovers the key to finding hope in a fallen world. In the same chapter 11 of Ezekiel that we find God's declaration of judgment on his unfaithful and idolatrous people, we also find a promise from him for the future. In Ezekiel 11:17 17-20, God reveals his future plan for the devastated nation. Therefore say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. In both the destruction of Jerusalem in Ezekiel's time and the destruction of Jerusalem in Titus' time, we see the result of isolation from God's Spirit. When we draw away from God, we are met only with darkness. The world holds no hope for us apart from God. His Spirit and presence is our only anchor in a world full of chaotic storms. Indeed, the reality looked forward to in Ezekiel, where our hearts are undivided and our spirit is new, and our actions reflect that accordingly, is only possible if something dramatically changes. The people of Israel had been trying to figure out how to stay faithful to God for hundreds of years, and they had failed miserably. The problem, it turned out, was not with their ability to follow laws and refrain from doing the wrong things. In other words, their problem with disobeying God was not with their actions. The problem was with their heart and with their spirits. At Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Christ to the world. We have done this holiday so many times, we often forget, if you'll excuse the cliché, the reason for the season. Christ coming to the world is significant, not just because it allowed him to heal, teach, and go down to history, but because it signifies the beginning of a world-changing modification to the life of all people. For thousands of years, God's presence had been unavailable to the common person. Our sinful state separated us from the glory of our loving God. But when Christ was born, it heralded the start of a new age, where the God of all people could not just live among them, but could live within them. Our spirits have been changed by the Spirit, and with the Spirit of Christ in us, coaxing us, forming us, our hearts of stone are slowly transformed, and the weighted yoke of our old lives of sin is replaced with the feather-light covenant of God with His people. We no longer look at the world and mourn, for we can see beyond the world. Instead of cowering behind the walls of a city, we, empowered by God, can bring the fight to the world. Fulfilling Christ's promise to Peter that not even the gates of hell would be able to withstand the might of his people. Christmas is more than just a celebration of Christ. It is the celebration that God, in His entirety, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, designed a plan to bring this rotten, adulterous, unfaithful people back to Him, to wash them anew, to instill in them a hope for the future. Christmas is about a small town called Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It is also about the present reality of God's presence in His people today. When you celebrate the birth of Christ, celebrate also the birth of everything we know about our intimate relationship with God. Ezekiel's question, ah, sovereign Lord, have you forgotten your people, is answered decisively at Christmas by the cries of a newborn who would bring with him the invitation for all people to know intimately within their hearts, minds, and spirits, their God.